Let us uh, move on now to our teaching for this morning. We're wrapping up our Advent series today. Since uh, Technically, since Christmas lands on a Saturday, uh, today would be the last Sunday of Advent. Okay, so uh, we are finishing up our Advent series today uh, where we've been going through Colossians chapter 1. So if you'd like to read along with me, you can open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be reading in verses 19 through 23. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Once again, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today. If you're having trouble finding it, we'll have the words on the screens next to me, so you'll be able to follow along there. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, continuing to learn about, uh, about the meaning of Christmas, the incarnation, from uh, this letter to the Colossians, wrapping up our Advent series today. So, in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Several decades ago, there was a British uh, author, writer, commentator named Malcolm Mudridge, and he wrote this after his conversion to Christianity. He wrote this about Jesus. He said, as man alone... Jesus could not have saved us. As God alone, he would not. Incarnate, he could and did. What this does, this, this quote, it highlights for us the, the importance of Jesus' incarnation. What that is, that's, a big, that's the theological term for Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, uh, God the Son, taking on flesh and becoming a man. As Mudridge points out there, uh, a man just dying for our sins cannot pay for any one of our sins. If I were to attempt to die for your sins, it would produce nothing because I am just like you. We are just like one another. We are all people, men and women, and on top of that, we are all sinners. And so we cannot atone for one another's sins. So as man, we cannot pay for each other's sins. But as he said also, but as God alone, he cannot pay for our sins either. He cannot save us from our sins because as God alone, he is, uh, he is unbreakable, right? He is uh, absolutely holy, cannot take on our sin. Uh, there is, he is invulnerable. And so what he had to do in order to save us was to become a man. This is why Christmas is necessary. This is why Christmas is necessary and Jesus taking on flesh, as Paul wrote about here in verse 22, that he reconciled us, notice that he says, by his physical body. It was so important and necessary that Jesus become man, that he come down to this earth in the most vulnerable state there is as a baby, 
so that he might save us from our sins. It's important that we remember this, this meaning and importance of Christmas uh, as individuals, but also cosmically what it means for, for the importance of the Son of God to become a man. Because in our culture, in, in cultural Christmas, so often the message is the exact opposite of true Christmas. In cultural Christmas, and in, in, in cultural American Christmas, so often the message is that if we were just all a little nicer, all a little kinder, if we all worked a little harder, if we were all a little warmer, well, then we could, we could make the world a better place. We, we look around at the world, and we see the problems that are there, and if we just join together, well, then we can solve those problems, right? We can, we can be our own saviors. Whenever we look around in our, in our music and in our movies and in the, the various messages of cultural Christmas, that's what we're being told, that we can, in a sense, reconcile ourselves with all of the various uh, hostilities and with all the various problems out there if we all just join together and work a little bit harder. But don't you see, the incarnation, true Christmas, is the exact opposite message. It's the exact opposite message. It says to us, that no matter how much harder we try, no matter how much nicer we are, no matter how much more uh, hot chocolate or eggnog we drink, we will not rec- uh, reconcile ourselves. We will not save ourselves. What was necessary was for God to come down to earth. We could not bridge the gap. We could not cross the divide to reconcile the world to God or even, or even the problems that we have within the world. It took God bridging the gap in Jesus Christ coming to this earth in the form of a baby born in the most humblest of means. This is true Christmas, and its message, its essence, is the exact opposite of cultural Christmas. And so, as we live as, as, as Americans, and as we live in, in the midst of our culture, celebrating Christmas and, and partaking in and enjoying all of the, the, the wonderful things that do come along with the, the, the cultural aspects of it, Right? As we enjoy these things, we must also remember uh, what is the ultimate meaning of Christmas, what is the ultimate importance of it, so that it might uh, fill what is ultimately empty um, in those celebrations and in those sentiments, uh, if it were not for what Jesus Christ did and the reality of that. So we're talking about the message of Christmas, the message of Christmas being that it is peace and reconciliation which happens through the work of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation. Today we're going to look at that in three different angles or, or, or in three different considerations. Look, first we're going to talk about the why. The why for reconciliation. Why is it necessary? Secondly, we're going to talk about the how. How did God reconcile us to himself? How does he plan to reconcile all things? And then third, the what. What does reconciliation do? Okay? So we're going to talk about the why, the how, and then the what. Of reconciliation. So first of all, the why. Why is reconciliation? We're going to talk about the need for reconciliation. It's interesting with Paul, the way that Paul talks about it here. He says in verse 22 and 23, he says, but now you have been reconciled by his physical body through his death. And then he, he says this, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. It's some interesting wording that he uses there, that we have been reconciled uh, with God, but then he says, but we've been reconciled so that we might be presented to him. Okay, that, that's an interesting phrase. It's an interesting word if you think about it, like that, that, that is God's intention for our being cleansed from our sin. But he says, so, so we might be presented to him, and he describes in what kind of way. He says, so we might be presented to him 
uh, holy. That means free from any impurity, right? He says faultless and blameless before him. Now, being, being who we are, being 21st century Westerners, right? Being 21st century Americans and not being as steeped and, and, and grounded and raised up in the Old Testament tradition, like, like many of the people that Paul had been writing to here, even though he's writing to Colossians, there would have been many Jews who were among them. Uh, for them, whenever Paul w- w- would talk about uh, God reconciling them so them, they might then be presented to him holy, faultless, blameless. You see, for them, because they had been raised up and, and so saturated and grounded in the Old Testament tradition and, and, and uh, scriptures, this would have been uh, sounding off something that sounded familiar to them, right? This would have been key words. This would have been reminding them of something else that they were already very familiar with, which was the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's using language that's very reminiscent of it when he talks about being presented in this way. Uh, it's, it's very reminiscent of the Old Testament and the Levitical laws and how uh, and what was necessary in order for God and the people to be in relationship with one another and for the people to be presented before their God. You see, so there's all these detailed uh, rules and, and regulations for how it's supposed to work. It was these incredibly detailed ceremonial laws. In order for the priest to go before God, to present the people to God, so that they might uh, recovenant their relationship, so they might come before him and confess their sins, ask for forgiveness, so that they might ask for his blessing over them. For the high priest to present the people before God and to maintain that relationship, even for him to be able to do so, there were all of these uh, incredibly detailed and strict rules. It was not as simple as, as you and I go before God just on our own as we can go on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, go before the presence of God. For the high priest, he can only go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, right, where the presence of God was, his full relational presence. He could only go into that place once a year, and whenever he did go into that place, there were all of these cleansing rituals that he had to go through. He had to absolutely clean himself, purify himself, his body. There could be no uh, blemishes on himself. He had to go in, he could not have any diseases, any sicknesses. He and his body had to be completely uh, uh, without blemish. Also, his clothing and the, the priestly garments he wore had to be absolutely clean as well. So he himself had to go through all these cleaning and purification rituals. Then on top of that, before he would go in as a representative of the people before God to present them to God, well, he had to go through some rituals for them too because they had sin. The people had sin, right? We have sin. And so there are some things he had to do in order to go before God's presence. There were, there were sacrifices that had to be made and, and, and so on. And if you've ever read through Leviticus or in Numbers, and, uh, you can read through all these different ritual regulations that they had. And to us, it might often seem really over the top, right? It might seem really over the top, like, okay, all these cleansing and all these washings, and you had to have all these different types of animals and these different sacrifices. And, you know, you, you killed one, you sent another one away. Like, it seems really over the top right, to us often. And, and, and it seems to us unnecessary. But here's what we need to understand. What was God doing in giving his people these rules and saying, if you are going to come before me and if you are going to be presented to me in a way that is acceptable to me, here are all the steps. What was God doing 
What was the point of all those steps? What he was doing in the Old Testament, in the Levitical laws, is he was teaching them a spiritual lesson through all of these rules and rituals. God was teaching them a spiritual lesson through all these things. What he was doing was he was teaching them in the various uh, extreme amounts of purification and all the sacrifices and all the, the different steps that they had to go through in order to go into God's presence. He was teaching them a spiritual lesson about the vast separation between the purity of God and the impurity of man. Right? All of those things that were necessary, those animals that had to die and their blood be spilled, these were all visual right, lessons that pointed to a spiritual reality for the people of Israel and also for us as well. Of Look, here is, here is how large the separation is between us because of sin. Here's how big the gap is between the holiness of God and the unholiness of man, right? Between his purity and our sinfulness, right? And just how far apart we are. The gap that has been created between us and God, the alienation because of our sin. These were object lessons, spiritual lessons, teaching them about these realities. And so while it might be difficult for us to understand the need for all those Old, Old Testament rules and regulations that it took for the high priest to present the people to God, it might be difficult for us to understand that, um, but we need to recognize that, that, that it is about uh, a spiritual lesson trying to say this is what it takes to be presentable before God. And I think sometimes even that idea is a little difficult for us, that we need to be presentable before God. Because we also live in a time which, by and large, people and our, and our culture has an idea of God. If, if God is acknowledged as being there, that if there's a God who is there, then he'll, he is ultimately a really, really nice guy. He is ultimately really nice, and he really likes us. And he just wants to make sure that we're happy. He wants to make sure that we're comfortable and that things are going well. By and large, at least in America, right, this is the, this is the popular picture of who God is. And so even if we're steeped in this cultural idea of God, then the whole idea itself, even like put all the, the archaic rituals to the side, the idea of needing to be presentable to God itself is somewhat difficult for a lot of us to understand, maybe even kind of offensive, for a lot of us to, to think, well, of course, why would I need to be made presentable before him? Because he just, he likes me already. He loves me already, just as I am. I had a poster in my room that said that, right? When I was a kid, he loves me just the way I am. So what's the need of all these different things? Well, think about it this way. Every single one of us is constantly thinking about our presentability. Whenever you got up this morning and you were getting ready to come to church and you were, uh, you were, Men, you're shaving your beard, or ladies, you're doing your hair, or you're brushing your teeth, you're choosing an outfit to wear. In a sense, to a certain, and maybe some of us to more of a degree than others, right? You were considering, how do I make my, myself presentable this morning? If you have ever gone into an important business meeting for your job, you go into it and you, you think, what do I need to do in order to be pre prepared and presentable in this meeting, whenever you go into certain social settings, and uh, whether it be uh, a, a date with a spouse or, or, or someone that you're interested in, whether it be a family get-together, whether it be a, a social event, you do different things in, your, in, in how you look at your clothing and wardrobe and your perfumes and so on to ask, how do I make myself presentable to the people that I'm going to be around, the people in the world out there? 
You see, we do this subconsciously all the time in our lives. We're, we're, considered, we're considering how do we make ourselves presentable because we know this. In the state that everything, no matter how, we've got a lot of beautiful people in here, okay? No matter how beautiful you are, okay, the state that we all just naturally are in when we roll out of bed is not the most presentable, okay? All right? No offense. You're beautiful people, all right? But we all need a little bit of preparation, don't we? <laughs> and that's why you think, how do I make myself presentable? Because we know that like, there's some work that needs to be done there. Now, just think about this. If we have broken God's law, if we have sinned against God, if we, by our sin, have caused an alienation between us and God, if we think, you know, just how to make myself presentable to the world, and we recognize there's a little bit of work there that needs to be done, when we consider who we really are in our hearts, in the sins that we have committed, and the sins that we have in our hearts, the, the thoughts that we have in our minds, which are so very often uh, contrary to God and his spirit, right? When we consider all these things and we think, okay, so what would it take for me to be presentable to him? We think, oh, it might be a little, it might be more than just a little bit of work. It might take a lot of work. If I really recognize my sinful state and how, how infinitely far that is from God's holiness, then we recognize, okay, we actually do need a good amount of work done to make us presentable before God because there is a separation and, and alienation there. Our unholiness, our sinfulness, creates a debt of sin between us and God. This debt, let it go. This, this, this alienation that is there, he cannot just pretend as if it is not there because of breaking his laws and severing that relationship. And so, how does he bridge that gap? What does, how does God uh, uh, cause reconciliation between us and him? Let's consider that. How did the way of reconciliation, what he does. Let's go back to the Old Testament system. You see, so like I said, there was all these uh, very extremely detailed and strict rules for what the high priest would have to do in order to present God's people to God in a, a state kind of like what uh, Paul talked about here, to present them holy and blameless in a way that was presentable to God. And what the high priest would have to do, he would have to go through all those uh, purification rituals for himself, right? But then he would have to go and do a ritual for the people. And the main thing, the, the, the central ritual that the high priest would have to do as atonement for the people's sins to go before God as a representative of the people is they would have to take two lambs, each one who were perfect lambs without any spot or blemish. You may have heard that phrase before. It's used a lot in the Bible talking about the lambs that will be presented for this. So it was two lambs, which were each one in and of themselves uh, seemingly visually perfect, right? Once again, being an object lesson of what was needed to be accepted into God's presence, to be presentable to him. So these two perfect lambs. Now, the high priest would take one of these lambs, and he would actually lay his hand upon it. Okay, this is important. He would lay his hand upon the lamb, and in doing so, pray and what was, what was seen as symbolically happening is that as he was laying his hand on that lamb and praying, the sins of the people were being transferred to that lamb. So here you had this lamb who, who was spotless and without blemish, was perfect. And the blemishes of the people were being transferred onto that lamb. And then that lamb would be sent off out of the camp. 
whenever they were, you know, living uh, uh, in the wilderness or whenever they're living in the nation, it'll be sent off out into the wilderness. In other words, it would be banished from the presence of God. Because what they saw as the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in Israel, right? Remember, that it's a very different mindset from the way that we think about the presence of God. We think of him being everywhere. For the lamb to be banished out of Israel was to be banished from the presence of God. Because that is a consequence for sin. That is a consequence for our impurity, for our breaking God's laws, being banished from his presence. So rather than his people being banished, the, the priest would lay his hand on this lamb their blemishes transferred to the lamb, the lamb would be uh, banished from the presence of God. But then they would take that second perfect lamb, he would do the same thing, lay his hands on it, in a sense, symbolically transferring the sins and blemishes of the people to this lamb, but then this one would be slaughtered. This one would be killed. Its blood would be poured out uh, to atone for the sins of the people. And it was these rituals which were necessary in order for the high priest to go as a representative to, in other words, bring the nation before God and to bring them before God as presentable before him. To bring them before God and to actually receive his presence. To not be punished for trying to come before him. This is what was necessary. What the New Testament tells us is that Jesus is our lamb without blemish. This is why it was so important that that Jesus be the only perfect man, that Jesus be the only man who has ever walked this earth without breaking God's law, without sinning against God, being absolutely perfect, pure, and righteous in and of himself, in, in, in his character and in his actions, because he had to be that perfect lamb who could be uh, lifted up for our atonement. So this is why it is so important that Jesus be, uh, have perfect obedience in his life. So Jesus is our lamb without blemish. He is the one who, as he went to the cross, was banished from the presence of God and whose blood was uh, shed and who was slain as, uh, to, to receive on himself the consequences for our sin. But for his work, for, for that perfect lamb's work to be applied to you, do you know what has to happen? Well, do you remember what had to happen for the people? They couldn't just send one lamb off and kill the other one, but the high priest had to lay his hands upon it. Also for you, you have to lay your hands upon Christ. If you want Christ's work to be applied to you, if you want to receive the forgiveness of sins that is offered in him and the reconciliation with God that can be accomplished in his physical body, here's what you have to do as well. You must lay your hands upon Christ. And whenever you do, he receives, not just symbolically, but actually, right, in, 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 in an ultimate reality which we cannot even comprehend, he receives your blemishes. He receives your sin. There is a transference of your sin onto him whenever you lay your hands upon Christ, and then a transference of his righteousness onto you. So that now where once you were, one, you were seen in the sight of God as alienated, as impure, as unholy, as, as unpresentable, unacceptable, wherever you lay your hands on Christ, who is our perfect lamb, who is our perfect lamb, who was slain on our behalf, who was banished on our behalf, then you receive that transference of not just your blemishes onto him, but his righteousness, his favor, his acceptability and his, his presentability transferred onto you. Now, whenever you go before God and he sees you, he sees the beauty of his son.
there's this amazing story in Mark chapter 5. If you've uh, read the book of Mark and, you, and you're familiar, in Mark chapter 5, there's this amazing story of this woman, uh, it tells us, who had uh, this condition that was causing her to, to hemorrhage blood. Uh, I think it says for, for 12 years. For 12 years, she had this condition which was causing her to hemorrhage blood. It says that she had gone to different doctors. She had gone and she had tried to seek out all these different remedies and nothing could be done. Now, that's surely a miserable condition to have, right? But like I said before, all throughout the Bible, there are these object lessons that are supposed to tell us something spiritually. For her to have this hemorrhaging of blood for all these years, what that, ha- what that meant for her culturally and religiously is that it made her ritually unclean. It made her ritually, according to the Levitical laws, ritually unclean, uh, impure, and unable to participate in the worship of the people. Because of her condition, it was not just miserable because of the physical state that it put her in, the agony that it put her in to experience that, but also the spiritual pain, the spiritual struggle that she had to endure because of her condition and the experience of being separated between her and God. But then here comes along Jesus. Here comes along Jesus, and he is walking through a crowd. And she considers to herself, you know, I've tried everything. I've tried all the different remedies. I've tried all the different solutions. You know, even even my priests, even my temple, they cannot do anything for me because I have been barred from entering their gates because I'm so impure. I am so unclean. But here's Jesus, and she thinks to herself, if I could just go and touch the hem of his robe, then I can be saved. And that's what she does. She pushes her way through the crowd. Jesus is working his way through the crowd. She goes, and in faith, she touches him. And it says that she is immediately made clean. She is immediately healed. Jesus stops, and he says, hold on, who touched me? You guys remember this story? He says, who touched me? They said, well, what are we talking about? We're in a crowd, right? We're bumping around. There's a lot of people touching. He says, no, 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 no. No, this is different. This is different. You see, what was this? This was the touch of faith. This is what I'm talking about you guys need. need. This is what I'm talking about we need. This is the touch of faith. He says, no, no, no. Somebody touched me. In a sense, what happened when, she, when, when this woman touched him with a touch of faith, she touched him and her uncleanness, her blemish was transferred onto Jesus. And his purity, his wholeness, his acceptability was transferred onto her. That's what happened in that moment where she was made clean. It was not just a physical healing. If we only see that, we miss the point of the story. It was not just a physical healing. Yes, she was physically healed, but it was the spiritual transference. It was the transfer. It was this spiritual healing that was so significant. And it was that which made Jesus say, hold on. No, somebody touched me. Like a lamb, this woman went and put and, and touched that lamb who was Jesus, and her blemishes were transferred onto the lamb, Jesus, and then uh, and he took it from her. But consider this. She went and she touched the holy, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, the, the true temple who replaced this whole Old, uh, Old Testament uh, Levitical system, right? She went and she touched the embodiment of, of the Holy of Holies, the embodiment of what the Ark of the Covenant had meant. And just consider this for a moment. Up until this point, what happened whenever somebody would touch what was holy? 
when they shouldn't have? What would happen whenever someone, if someone would enter the Holy of Holies without going through the correct um, purification rituals? Did you know that whenever the high priest would enter up into the Holy of Holies, he would actually have a rope tied to his ankle with a bell? Did you all know this? He would have a rope tied to his ankle with a bell, and they'd be listening. Because if that high priest did not do things correctly, if he had gone in there uh, hiding, concealing some kind of sin, then he would be struck dead in the presence of God, whenever his sin would go into the presence of holiness. And so that rope was so they could pull his corpse out. So up until this point, what happened? Whenever impurity touched the purity of God. Do you remember the story? We were talking about this in my do group the other day. Do you remember the story of Uzzah? In the Old Testament, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. God said, do not touch it because it is holy, right? So for the, because of the same reason, holiness and unholiness do not go together. Purity and impurity cannot coincide. So God says, do not touch the Ark. They, they stumble. The Ark is about to fall, and this man named Uzzah goes to save it, right? He goes to catch it. He touches it, and he falls dead on the spot. So up until this point in Mark chapter 5, Whenever somebody would touch the holiness, whenever they would touch the holiness of God, the holy of holies, what would happen? Someone would die. Someone would die. So why didn't she die in Mark chapter 5? Because here's the thing. For her impurity to be transferred onto Christ, someone still had to die. But in this case, it was not her. It would be Jesus. And it, it wouldn't be at this time. It wouldn't be in Mark chapter 5. It'll come a little bit later. But in this case, whenever she touched him, her impurity and blemishes were transferred to him. She was healed. She was free. Her sins were forgiven because of the touch of faith. She was now reconciled with God in a way that the the Levitical system never could have done. In this case as well, someone was going to die, but it would be Jesus. He would be her reconciliation. In this case, she touches Jesus and lives. This is what happens. This is the picture of what happens whenever someone becomes a Christian. Whenever you go to Jesus Christ and you lay your hands on him with the touch of faith and your sins are transferred onto him, your blemishes are transferred onto him, he receives them, and then he in himself and his body is the reconciliation for your sins. This is the picture of what happens. You ought to die. We ought to die whenever we uh, uh, dare to go into the presence of God, but because of Jesus' death. Because of, because of Christmas, him coming down as a man, uh, because of him becoming vulnerable, and then dying on the cross, becoming our reconciliation in his physical body, he, be, he instead becomes like that lamb who is banished and who was slain so that he might atone for our sins. This is why Paul, here in Colossians 1.22, says that because of what Christ has done, because of what Jesus has done and who he is, and because of Christmas, God coming down in physical body, he says, now we might be presented to God. We might be presented to God in holiness, in purity, in beauty. He, listen to that. He says that you can be presented to God faultless. How incredible is that? I think that for many of us, we close off our minds to just how life-changing, even that one simple word is. Because how many of us, how many of you daily and hourly are carrying around the weight of your faults, right? How many of us are, we're being prevented from prayer 
We're being prevented from worshiping God. We're being prevented from reading his word. We're being prevented from from really digging deep into his presence and trying to grow close in intimacy to the person of God and who he is. We let ourselves be prevented from, uh, from even church attendance and from being deeply involved in the body because, once again, we are holding on to those faults. We are always daily and hourly in the back of our mind aware and we know, oh, you know, even as you listen to the sermon, oh, well, God loves me and God has reconciled me, but I, I still, I, I know about this. I know about this and I know what I did. Or I know about this and what I thought. Uh, I remember this from my past, and I, or I'm still struggling with this right now. And so you're still carrying that. But listen to what Paul says. Oh, we have little faith listening to our own minds instead of God's word. Quit listening. Silence those voices in your mind. And with faith, listen to what Paul says. He says, you can be presented. You have been carrying that weight around faultless. Faultless before God. You who are always so concerned about your presentability to the world, and not just in your physical appearance, but in your actions, in your morality, in the words that you say and trying to be impressive before your family, maybe trying to impress your parents, maybe trying to impress um, your, your, your friends in your social circles, trying to impress people at the job. You who are always so concerned with your presentability, you who tries to work so hard and do all the right things so you would feel like you're presentable before God, listen to what Paul says. You who are so tired and exhausted from all that work, he says, through the work of Jesus Christ alone, you are made presentable and without blemish before God. You see, this is the, this is the what of reconciliation that, we, that, that we're led to in the gospel. What does it do in our life? It leads us to this. It leads us to, let me just give you one. There's so many different ways we can put this. Let me give you one word. It leads you to freedom. It leads you to a freedom like there is no other offered to us. I'll give you another one. It leads us to a healing like there's no other offered to us. That, that weight and burden of feeling and carrying around all your faults. And constantly thinking as though it, it, it causes a separation between you and the Father and, and prevents you from prayer, prevents you from great acts of obedience. All those things, you can be given freedom from that. You can be given freedom from that today in the true meaning of Christmas, in the reason why Jesus became a man so he might reconcile us in his physical body. You who have been carrying around uh, the, the weight of those blemishes and working so hard to make yourself presentable. And so now you are so exhausted from all of that work of trying to make yourself presentable before God and man, you can be given healing from that exhaustion. You can be refreshed. You can be refilled in the gospel. No matter who you are, if you are in Jesus Christ, this promise and what Paul says here is true for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, the promise that today you can be presented before God, holy, faultless, and without blemish, those words can be true of you. Not just sentimentalities, but, but, but factually, ultimately real in a way that is so much more real than, than anything else in this world. You know, whenever you read the Christmas story, and you read the genealogies in, in the book of uh, Matthew and in the book of Mar- uh, Luke, and you read those Christmas stories, and each one of them starts with the genealogy of Jesus' family. And one of them, it traces them back 
to Abraham, and the other one traces him back to Adam. But it, it, it goes through, uh, you know, there was this person, the son of this person, this person, the son of this person. Have you ever read those genealogies before? It's really easy, easy to skip over them, but let me encourage you not to. Because if you've ever not skipped over them and you, and you actually read them, then here's something you might notice. You might notice that there are a lot of interesting characters in Jesus' genealogy. There are a lot of interesting characters there. Uh, there are not just men. Normally, we only see men in genealogies, the fathers and sons. But in Jesus' genealogies, we, we see women as well. We see, we see a couple of women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, which, which is interesting. But then on top of that, uh, we, we see a couple of unscrupulous people, one of them being the patriarch Abraham. Abraham had a lot of faults, if you've ever read about him. You know who else is mentioned in there? David. David, he was a great man. He had a lot of faults. Right? He had a lot of things that he did wrong. Right? There's a lot of people in there, those just being some of the prime examples uh, of people that you would think, ooh, man, you know, him? Or her, Rahab the prostitute is mentioned. Her in Jesus' genealogy. Her in Jesus' family. Here's what you need to get from that. Here's what it means. That if you're in Jesus' family, no matter who you are and where you come from, whether you are a king or whether you are a prostitute, if you are in Jesus, he is happy and he is proud to call you his family. Some of you guys feel as though you're disqualified because of your family. You think, we're, we're not important people. You know, we're not all that important. We're not all that impressive. Some of you feel disqualified because of where you come from. I come from a really unimportant place. Or I come from a place that's not all that great. It's got a lot of baggage. It has a lot of darkness. Some of you feel disqualified because of the things you've done and because of your past. And you think to yourself, you know, Jesus, he might be he good to me in certain ways, but there's no way he is, he is excited to have me and his family and where I come from and the things that I've done and the baggage that I carry. Do you know what the gospel tells us? Do you know what the message of reconciliation, do you know what the message of Christmas tells us? That if you are in Jesus Christ and you have touched him with the touch of faith and your sins have been transferred onto him, then God looks at you and he sees something beautiful. He sees something holy, and he sees a person who he is thrilled, and he is proud to have in his family. That is what Christmas does in all of our lives as individuals. But you know what else? It also does something in our world. Because in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus not only reconciles us as individuals to God in his physical body, but he also says this. He says that he is reconciling us all things to himself. He says things in heaven and things on earth. He's reconciling everything to himself because recognize this. It's not hard to see. Sin has caused um, alienation, if you want to put it that way. Sin has caused brokenness all over our world, not just in our individual lives and in me as an individual before God, but sin has caused, caused brokenness and alienation between us as communities, between us as people, between nations. We can even see the brokenness of sin in the fabric of creation and in, in diseases, in natural disasters, and in all these other things. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is reconciling even all of that in himself. So here's what, this, here's what that means. It means that whenever we do things like fundraising for 
Hope International. And we're making sacrifices that we can give so they can do the work that they might, they might do. It'd be really easy to fall into cynicism sometimes and say, well, but what's the point of it? What's the point? There's so many problems in the world. And we, there's been these problems, they're all of human history, and there's going to be these problems after we die. And there's all these issues, there's all these, these things going on. And outside, there's so many things outside of our control. What's the point of all of it? What's the point of, of helping out with things like that? What's the point of doing just individual acts of good in my own life? What's the point of continuing to, to strive and, and, and to work for righteousness and to work for justice and to see reconciliation in our world? Right? What, what's the point of it? It's so easy to be tempted to give up and to fall into cynicism like that. But if we believe in the gospel, if we believe what Paul says here, when he says that Jesus in his body has reconciled not just us as individuals and our sins to God, but he is reconciling all things to himself. Do you know what that means? It means that every time you give a dollar to hope to, to, to missions, and then that dollar is used well, and it goes towards the gospel being shared in another nation, it means that that was not a waste. It means that every time God calls you to uh, follow him in obedience, to serve him in some way, whether that be through sharing the gospel, to serve him, whether that be through sharing uh, through a ministry of mercy, whether that be him calling you to, uh, to work for justice, to work for someone's healing, whatever else it might be. It means that because of what Jesus has done and is doing, none of that is done in waste. Because he is, no matter what we see in the day-to-day, and no matter what we see in the news, he is going to reconcile all things to himself. You see, if you just watch the media every day, you might be told that you're fighting a losing battle. But because of the gospel, we know that that is not true. Because of the gospel, we know that day-to-day and from battle to battle might be hard, and there might be some setbacks here and there, but that we are in a war which has already been won by our King, Jesus Christ. You see, so reconciliation in Christmas is not just impactful for us as individuals, but it also means something cosmically. It means something for our world. It means that you should not give up on justice. It means that you should not give up on uh, living out and following those big, daring acts of righteousness and obedience that God has called you to. It means that you should not give up on speaking the truth and sharing the gospel because in Christ, all of these things are playing a part in and adding to the work of victory that he has already accomplished. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you for the true message of Christmas. Lord, we we do thank you and we celebrate all the wonderful cultural blessings and gifts and sentimentalities and nostalgia that we get to experience this time of year. We, we savor those things and we thank you for them, Father. But we especially thank you that all of this time of celebration and the parties and the festivities and the, and, and the time together is made uh, infinitely more meaningful for us who are in Jesus Christ because of what it means for our reconciliation to you, that you have promised us the the invitation to be made holy, faultless, and without blemish, presentable before you. Lord, we just praise you for that this morning. We ask that if there's anyone here who has not yet 
place their hand on Jesus, who has not touched him with a touch of faith to say that, yes, I want my sins transferred to him and to receive the gift of his word. Lord, would you lead them to do that now? Touch them with your spirit, invade their heart, convict them of their sin, and then lead them before the cross in your loving kindness. Lord, and then let us be encouraged and let us be inspired to not give up on the mission of the gospel, to not give up on the great commission, to share the gospel, and then to, and then to teach all that you have commanded us, to call all people, all men and women, to obedience before Jesus the King. Because we know, Lord, that despite what we see in the day today, and despite what we are presented in the media and on the internet and by, uh, by cynical neighbors or family, Lord, that we know, we know because of Christmas and because of the cross and because of the resurrection that we are in a winning war, that we are on the side of the victorious, the one who overcame death. And if he overcame death, then he has overcome all. So give us the inspiration we need, the power that we need to follow in the works of obedience that you have placed before us. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.